I, I think to me, a lot of it is about ultimately fairness, um, as well as really like living in harmony with natural systems. Because, you know, the earth itself is such an incredible resource, right? It, you know, it, it gives us life, but it provides to us in so many different ways. Walk. Talk. Listen. An attempt to connect people and make this world a bit better by sharing opinions and experiences based on the belief that everyone's perspective is true, albeit partial. My name is Maurice Blum, and I would like to welcome you to yet another episode of Walk, Talk, Listen. Hey everybody, this is another episode of the podcast Walk, Talk, Listen, and as always, I'm delighted with today's guest, uh, who will introduce himself. Chris, please go ahead. Yeah, hi Maurice, nice to meet you, and thanks to everyone uh, for listening. So my name is Chris Bullman, I am the co-founder of an organization called Brightest, um, www.brightest.io, uh, on the internet if you're interested in checking it out. Um, we're basically an organization that focuses on sustainability and social impact data. So our thesis and theory is that data is very, very important for driving kind of better organizational decision making. Um, it can enable efficiencies, automation, and, and valuable insights. But obviously, at the same time, a lot of impact-oriented organizations, whether that's in the nonprofit space or in the for-profit space, really kind of struggle with data capacity um, and data expertise, right? It can be expensive to hire uh, data and IT professionals. Um, sometimes it can be challenging to um, pull data from multiple systems or multiple different parts of the organization um, or potentially collaborate with data um, across different stakeholder groups or, or different external parties. And so we created Brightest to kind of give organizations one unified collaborative system to to work with data across their operations and across their programs so that they can make better decisions and and serve the communities or achieve the mission that they're looking to uh, move forward great and and i'm going to ask you you know some more questions about how that is going um but before we do that um yeah, well, can you tell a bit about you know backgrounds? You know, how, uh, how did you get involved with this? Uh, did you study? Um, did you get you know straight into this work? Uh, tell a little bit about your journey. Yeah, so it, the interesting thing when I was going to university, uh, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, and I considered going into journalism, and I was exploring kind of different career options, and. Interestingly, I graduated into sort of the 2008-2009 um, financial crisis or, or economic downturn. And so the job market was very volatile. There weren't a lot of good job opportunities. And I found an opportunity at a small uh, solar energy company. So an organization that was um, working on developing solar projects, doing research, collaborating with other organizations in the clean tech and renewable energy space. 
and you know had an opportunity to work with a lot of really great people had a good opportunity to really kind of travel around the world at that point because you know the market for solar energy was really being driven by european demand like for example the uh german feed-in tariffs that existed but then you know there was a lot of renewable energy activity in asia in in japan and in china and in korea um, so it was a very kind of global ecosystem at the time. And, you know, that really kind of opened my eyes, one, to the possibilities of what we really can achieve by electrifying transportation and energy and lots of different areas of our economy and what we can do from a standpoint of reducing emissions and fighting climate change, but also just how kind of interconnected everything is, right? Like, you know, climate and sustainability are closely connected to agriculture and manufacturing and public health and and sort of, you know, economic disparities. And, you know, as I learned more and more about sort of sustainability and, and climate change and environmental justice, it became clear to me that, you know, a lot of the barriers to moving things forward uh, as we've actually just seen this past week in the United States, mm. is cultural, it's regulatory, it's legal, in, as much as it is technological, right? Like the, mm -hmm. the solar panels that we have today are efficient enough. Um, the batteries that we have today are, are largely good enough. You know, we, we obviously want them to get a little bit cheaper, but, you know, we have the inverters and the energy storage and the renewable energy that can kind of compete on an economic playing field with traditional fossil fuels and is not only better for the world it's it's usually cheaper from a from a total cost of ownership standpoint but you know you have to deal with like utility uh incentives and rate structures and you have to deal with um government mandates and rules and incentives and subsidies and all these different things and so i think that really just kind of reaffirmed for me again that you know, technology is part of the solution, but it's really a tool in the broader toolkit. And ultimately, this is about kind of, you know, alignment of, of democracy and people and communities and, and what sort of society needs along with technology to kind of really move things forward. And, and then, you know, when you worked for that other company, what make, made you decide then to start your own? How did yeah, that happen? So, yeah, so I... not I everybody's spent... going, you know, say, okay, I will start something by myself. No, it's it's a good question. So, so I actually, um, I wanted to, and I had this concept for a model that was going to actually focus a lot on solar that would promote like rural electrification in emerging markets. So the idea was, you know, we were going to develop solar projects in the US and then we were going to reinvest some of the proceeds and the economics for those projects in developing countries. And so was kind of getting into that model. We were going to call it social solar um, with my business partner. And, you know, we had kind of established some initial projects that we were starting to work on in the US. Uh, we had set up some partners um, in Africa, in, in Uganda and, and Kenya that we were going to work with locally to sort of promote um, electrification there because a lot of power was being um, powered off either like diesel generators or, or kerosene, you know, things that are just like very corrosive for people's lungs and, and really sort of poor um, for the uh, air quality overall. 
And we were kind of setting up the initial structure and then ran into some kind of legal challenges that prevented us from moving forward and ultimately sort of forced me or, or put me in a position where I couldn't really do a lot of work for about six months on the solar side. And so while I had that downtime, you know, again, I've always been interested in, in technology and things like that. I said, hey, you know, I'll, I'll just teach myself how to code. Like, it'll be interesting. It'll be an interesting learning opportunity. It seems clear to me that, you know, the internet and social media and a lot of these different trends are are really, really important for just the society and the economy, both in positive and, and potentially negative ways. And so I ended up actually um, starting a company that I, I built a, an application that I built that was sort of processing um, data from different data feeds. That company actually did much better than I expected, sort of surprisingly well. Uh, it caught the attention of a larger venture-backed uh, technology company called Percolate. And the CEO of Percolate actually just reached out to me, Noah Breyer, who, who's still a friend of mine and is, is now sort of on to his next company. Um, but he reached out and said, hey, I think what you're doing is really interesting. Do you want to sort of roll what you're doing um, and come join Percolate and, and help us build that out? And so I, I spent a couple more years at Percolate, um, you know, leading some teams and, and helping to kind of grow and, and contribute to that company. And then ultimately said, okay, you know, I've learned a lot about software. I've learned a lot about technology and data. Uh, I still kind of have this passion for sustainability and, and climate change and climate justice. Let me try to put those two things together. And, and that ultimately led to Brightus. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Let us go back to to Brightus and and you know where are you now with the company? Can you maybe share what you're proud of so far, and where do you hope you know to take the the, the organization? Yeah, it's it's funny as as an entrepreneur, particularly when you're working on a startup, where I feel like you know you're constantly on this emotional roller coaster where. You have these successes all the time, but then you also run into these challenges. And so it's mm -hmm. it's a very boom bust mentality. And I've been trying to kind of, from my own mental health standpoint, you know, get myself out of that, the, the sort of short-term uh, ups and downs and, and think about longer term. But, you know, I think ultimately for me is like, you know, we want to be kind of the, the data layer or the technology canvas that's really powering organizations that are working on positive community impact and also decarbonizing our economy. And so just to kind of get to the point where, you know, I think we have about two, maybe even 300 organizations now total on the platform around the world. Um, you know, it's a mixture of nonprofits, universities, um, for-profit companies, uh, just to get to the point where you can kind of see the activities and the, the work that people are doing where, you know, people are tutoring youth and, you know, working at soup kitchens and doing kind of economic development work and working inside their company to make it more sustainable. Just being able to kind of see that on a daily and on a weekly basis is just incredibly inspiring because I think we're kind of ultimately like meta enablers where like our mission is to help you achieve your mission faster and more efficiently and and more transparently and so you know there's always this challenge and impact where either i feel like you can go really deep or you can go really wide like you can either be very very local and really work with a specific constituency and i think that's really really important um, and really valuable 
we have gone the sort of really wide, like very flexible, very kind of breath oriented. You know, we've translated Brightest into multiple languages. It's now being used in multiple different countries. We don't have the capability and the capacity and the resources to be really local on the ground. So what we want to do is we want to help the organizations who are already there, who already understand the problem, who have the relationships with those communities. We want to kind of empower them um, so that they can focus less on the kind of administrative or, or data aspects of what they're doing and more on you know the program work and the relationships and the impact and outcomes. You know, you you mentioned that you also work with with uh, the you know organizations from the non-profit non-for-profit sector. Um, I'm, I'm especially well, you know, I'm especially curious about those because I work for one myself. Where do you think the NGOs are doing well when you work with them, and where, you know, you you come across well, those are challenges. They need to you know get their act together around this. Yeah, it's a really good question. I think. I'll try not to be too, let's say, controversial here, or, mm -hmm. or I'll try to be diplomatic in terms of how, how I frame this. I would say, you know, the vast majority of people working in the nonprofit and impact and philanthropy space are, you know, incredibly wonderful, caring people who really want to make a, a positive difference. I think sometimes there are, how do you say it, um, structural issues that potentially um, you know, undermine or, or sort of impede progress. And I think some of that, again, comes from the, the potentially like global lo local nature of humanitarian work and also potentially how like nonprofits function, right? Because, you know, if you think about particularly like a larger NGO, um, that NGO is, is driven by development and by fundraising, And it's incredibly important that that organization is able to, to sort of raise money so that it can continue its programs and kind of do, do the work. But I think that creates a little bit of a tension sometimes where you have the local parts of the organization who are really focused on kind of the program work. And then you have maybe the global folks who are a bit more focused on the P&L and on kind of the monetization aspect of the model. And I think making sure that those two things are aligned where One, you know, you're telling the local story of kind of the impacts and the outcomes that you're enabling as an organization, and you're using that as sort of a storytelling device to um, reach donors and, and bring more resources into the organization and also create partnerships. I think that's a really, really important thing. But also at the same time, I think having kind of the global areas of the organization really sort of understand and trust the local members of the team um, and, and really help make sure that they are approaching it from, from kind of the right perspective. You know, I, I don't know if we should get into this, but, you know, obviously there's been a lot of controversy just in the past week around, you know, some of the humanitarian reporting that's happened around, um, you know, the conflict in Ukraine with like Amnesty International. And I think there's a lot of potential tension between kind of what Amnesty Global was looking to do and what Amnesty Local and their kind of local partners in Ukraine wanted to see happen. And, you know, I think that that sort of shows you a case where um, there's just real like fundamental kind of misalignment between what an organization's kind of global goals are versus what potentially their local goals are. And I think finding ways to sort of, 
you know, break down structure and enable communication and collaboration within an organization that enables better global local understanding is, is really powerful and important. But I think that's something that a lot of larger uh, NGOs still struggle with. And, you know, that's not just specific to Amnesty. I've, I've seen examples of that elsewhere as, as well. And no, and I, I, I really appreciate you you mentioning this, and I think it's it's definitely something that, you know, many, uh, especially the more you know, as you, as you mentioned, the global uh, organization are struggling with is um, you know find the balance um, between all of that. And if we talk, for example, also about equity, you know, it's a matter of of uh, do you really walk the talk in all every, everywhere, right, internally as well as externally. And you know it, it's fine. We are all learning, but but you need to be aware that uh, um, you know <laughs> that you cannot only address uh, processes and systems changes without looking at you know what am I doing myself? Yeah, absolutely. What is our organization doing? And and uh, I you know I, I, will, I will talk with you a little bit later about that as well, where I like to link to sustainability, sustainable development goals with the inner development goals because I I think. You know, really being conscious about this um, is helpful for for people working in this space. Uh, so, so th- thanks for for raising that, um, Chris. I, w- I would like to um, to move you know the re- to the reason why I started this particular podcast, and it had to do with you know a hundred mile walk that I've been doing for the last ten years now to raise awareness um, about well i walk 100 mile in a week so 15 to 20 miles a day to raise awareness about uh, uh ending hunger poverty um and and uh injustice um and then i was you know often i'm accompanied by people that could not take place uh, two years ago because of covid so that's why i started this particular podcast so i'm virtually walking now with my my guest and, and talking about all kinds of topics now if I would ask you to walk 100 miles in a week, 15 to 20 miles per day, which course would you uh, pick? You know, why would you walk? Yeah, I would say, you know, again, going back to to what I was saying earlier, I mm-hmm. think if there's if there's one cause that I really want to mobilize awareness and action around, it is kind of climate justice because I think it's such an intersectional and such a sweeping. Um, issue right like you know we're talking about uh water access for communities we're talking about food scarcity or or food abundance and availability for people in regions that are going to be facing droughts and and severe weather and so if you know you think about the hundreds of millions of people whose lives are going to be impacted by this um, over the you know next decade and and beyond, I think climate is is a really really important cause. Uh, I was looking at my sort of step count on my phone the other day, and I think I'm mm-hmm. I think I'm doing about you know a few miles a day right now. So yes. I definitely have to to step up my mileage if uh, if I'm going to reach your level. But I think for for kind of climate and climate justice, uh, it's definitely a worthy um, thing to take on. Where do you think you know your 
your passion around this uh, comes from? Is it something you know you experienced during your youth, or is it something that happened, you know, a couple of years ago, or you read? How, how did that uh, develop and, and evolve? I, I think to me, a lot of it is about ultimately fairness, um, as well as really like living in harmony with natural systems, because you know the earth itself is such an incredible resource, right? It, you know, it, it gives us life, but it provides to us in so many different ways. Like, you know, going out into the woods and spending time in nature is like innately good for your immune system because of like some of the molecules and, and sort of chemicals that like trees give off. And, you know, a lot of like modern medicine is based on sort of plant derived things, right? Obviously, we source our food from nature, you know, we get shelter, we get resources. And so ultimately like living in more sustainable circular harmony with earth itself is just such a fundamentally important thing. But I think there's also this real question of, of equity or fairness, as you, as you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, most of the wealth that exists in the world today has been accumulated because of fossil fuels, right? It was accumulated because of the industrial revolution, it was accumulated because of oil wealth. And as a result of that, like a lot of that wealth accrued to a small portion of people, mostly, you know, Europeans and Americans, um, or other nations like potentially, you know, Russia or Saudi Arabia that have like very rich commodity resources. And as a result of that, it's, it's created a tremendous amount of inequality. It's also fueled climate change. And now we're at a point where, you know, the wealthiest people and the wealthiest nations and the most polluting companies are really the ones who deserve a lot of the accountability for this. But unfortunately, it's sort of the poor and the vulnerable who are dealing with most of the implications and so and most of the consequences and, and the harms. And so I think if if we're really talking about equity and, and balancing the scales, it's sort of forcing accountability on the organizations that are directly responsible for this. And really fueling a just transition and saying, like, how can we more equitably distribute the world's wealth in a way that um, is not going to sort of cause runaway greenhouse gas emissions and is, is going to mitigate a lot of these issues and just create a more sustainable, equitable um, economy for everyone, right? Like, we need more circular and biodynamic agriculture. You know, we should power everything with wind and solar panel and, and hydros and things like that. So it's just like we can create a structure where a lot of these like taxes on poverty don't exist and, and everyone can sort of reach, you know, fundamentally good quality standards of living, you know, whether that's defined by human rights principles or the, the UN SDGs. Great. Let, let us um, continue talking about, you know, the UN SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. You know, that's, you know, I, I think it's not perfect, but what I like about it is that as a world, uh, from different parts, you know, of different sectors, we talked and we came up with 17 goals. Some people think there are too many and maybe they are, but that's what we have. You have that framework. Um, and, you know, that go that talks about ending hunger, ending poverty, you know, uh, promote equity, name it, partnership. Um, so, you know, I would like to to tell the, the listeners about the Sustainable Development Goals. Um, but I also ask my guests, you know, if there is one thing you want to know, well, you want the listeners to know about the Sustainable Development Goals, what is it, you know, that, that you would like to 
to give uh, to the listeners? That's the first question. The other part is, um, I came across myself um, uh, against the inner development goals that have been developed uh, recently. And, and the reason that this group of people that is increasing now came up with these inner development goals is that they are saying that, you know, it's great that we have those 17 sustainable development goals, but we don't have, we never looked at the abilities and skills and uh, uh, the qualities that you need as an individual, as well as an community, an organization to push those, you know, to reach those goals. So I would like to have your, you know, the first question is, what do you like my audience to know about sustainable development goals? And second is just to give a quick opinion about the concept of the inner development goals from your point of view. Sure. So I think on the SDGs question, I'll, I'll cheat and maybe I'll, I'll pick two um, points there. Sure. No, I think no one, problem. you know, one is like, I think the SDGs are simultaneously an incredibly successful and an incredibly like unsuccessful framework. I think from a success standpoint, like just their universal recognition is really, really important, right? Like there are so many ESG or impact frameworks out there. There's, you know, GRI and SASB and the IFRS and all of these country specific ones. And if you ask most people to like describe them, most people who don't work in sustainability and impact reporting couldn't tell you a single thing about any of those frameworks. But pretty much everyone knows the SDGs, you know, can recognize the colors, kind of knows the principles. And so I think the SDGs are pretty unique in terms of providing effectively like a worldwide framework for how to think about progress and what we need to do. Now, unfortunately, at the same time, like our actual progress in those directions has, I think, definitely fallen short of expectations. And, you know, I don't know if you actually saw this, but right, there was recently the, the UN's own report, which is talking about, you know, how do we save the SDGs and do the SDGs need to be modified or, or what will it take to get us back on track? Because climate change is getting worse and we're not necessarily fulfilling most of the environmental SDGs because of war and, and conflict in different parts of the world, a lot of the human rights SDGs are, are also under pressure. And then given, you know, inflation and, and commodity shortages, partly due to the fact that, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine, and that's caused a lot of supply chain shocks in the agricultural um, supply chains, like, you know, food and, and poverty issues are also uh, affecting a lot of people. So I think on one hand, it's like, it's amazing that we have this unifying framework, but it's unfortunate that we're not like fulfilling the actual uh, reality of it, at least on a global scale. I think specific organizations are making really valuable and, and valiant contributions to it, but in like some total aggregate, we, we need to do more. Um, and I think the other thing that I really like about the goals is I think the fact that there's just a goal which is about collaboration toward the goals, I think is really, really important and powerful, which is, this is something that has been humbling for me, you know, even in my, my journey with Brightest is, you know, one of the things that we try to enable in our software itself um, more recently is the actual collaboration between different organizations. So I'm a foundation, how do I collaborate with my nonprofit partners? Or I'm a nonprofit, how do I collaborate with like my local agencies and affiliates? And even just that aspect of saying, 
some of the challenges that we're talking about, whether it's poverty or, or climate or, or ending global conflict, they're so big and so complicated that there's no way that any single organization or government is going to solve these issues. Like we just fundamentally have to collaborate. We need public-private partnerships. We need for-profit and non-profit partnerships. We need sort of tech and non-tech. Like just the idea of organizations thinking less in a competitive sense for resources and saying, oh, you know, I've got to raise the most money or I've got to maximize profits and growth and thinking more about equity and collaboration and saying like, let's do this together and let's share knowledge and share resources to make progress. I think that's an incredibly important principle. And I think it's something that is finally kind of starting to enter the consciousness of organizational leadership. We're still not like fully there, but I think we're in the early stages of uh, a leadership transition from competition to collaboration that I think is is really, really important and, and meaningful and positive. Um, and I think part of that sort of ties back to the idea of intentionality and the sort of individual or, or personal development goals which is thinking more around why are we doing this? Um, you know, what are my motivations? What's our mission? What's our purpose? What's our theory of change? And what will it actually take to kind of bring that to life? Mm. Great, great. Thank you. Um, talking a little bit about, you know, the inner development and and what is my own role um you know during those uh walks that i have with, with uh, people we often talk about you know spirituality and and then religion as well um, and I, I think it has to do with walking you know <laughs> uh, there is something to that right i mean you 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 uh, you wander away and you, you know why you're on earth or ideas come up and um, but then when when I have conversations about religion and spirituality with my co-workers, we, we often talk about the younger generation as well. And then some of, of, of the co-workers have said to me, you know, the younger generation is really different. Um, you know, they are less spiritual or less religion. And others are saying that, uh, no, they might be less religious in, in terms of institutionalized religion, but but the younger generation is still as spiritual as as, you know, uh, previous uh, generations if you look into you know your community um around you know a younger generation what do you see happening around religion and spirituality can you you know reflect a little bit uh, on that well so one of the things that um i've participated in and, and we've participated in uh in new york city so i'm i'm based in new york city but you know we're a, a distributed kind of remote global team um, so we've participated in the New York City kind of summer youth mentorship program for the last couple summers, which involves kind of working with different groups of high schoolers and providing them kind of mentorship and, and guidance and, and knowledge, both to kind of help them in their personal lives, but also to help them in their careers. And, you know, I think uh, I think it's really hard to be a young person today. Um, I think we're kind of the first generation, like really kind of my generation. So, you know, maybe the, the, the youth today are sort of the second generation to experience kind of unlimited um, information 
you know, if I, if I think about maybe like my parents' generation or previous generations, like you didn't have the internet, you didn't have seamless connectivity. And so in order to connect with people, you really had to manifest those connections in real life. Like you did have to go to church or you had to go to school or you had to kind of meet people face to face. And while I think in some ways, like digital communication is really incredible, like the fact that, you know, I can send a free message to someone around the world and have kind of instantaneous contact, I think in some ways that's really good, but potentially having like unlimited information and unlimited media, you know, content, like I can watch anything I want on Netflix or listen to anything on Spotify. Um, I think it has come a little bit at the expense of like in-person relationships and in-person communities. And because there's also been so so much of a trend toward kind of urbanization, you've seen more and more people congregating in larger cities where potentially they're transplants or they're immigrants, and they don't necessarily have as strong a local roots as maybe somebody who grew up in a smaller town or a a smaller community. So I, I think there are some kind of structural things that have changed um, fundamentally for young people, which is I have access to all this technology, you know, there's social media, I'm constantly connected to things. Therefore, that may have implications on how I interact with people socially, how I spend my time, and, and what I ultimately look for. And, you know, I think there have been some real negative consequences potentially around like, you know, perception and and anxiety and things like that. But what I would say in my sort of experience, I guess, kind of tying it back to to your question, I actually think young people are quite spiritual, particularly in an environmental sense. Like if you see a lot of the like youth climate activism that's coming from, you know, not only obviously like Greta Thunberg, but, you know, lots of different youth organizations like, uh, you know, youth for climate and the high school climate strikes that are happening. Like, I'm definitely seeing a lot of young people who are like very in touch with the world and feel like they have a very spiritual connection with like nature and with the planet. But I would say at the same time, for the most part, I think a lot of the like connectivity, a lot of the digital culture, and just a lot of the like constant noise has potentially disrupted trends and engagement with more like institutional or or established spirituality and, and things like that. Mm. And, and, um, so, so, do do you think ultimately will you know the, the the church as an institution will disappear or will it is it getting different shapes what what do you see around it different forms of uh... that's a hard question for me to answer i don't think i want to take a prediction on that one i i don't think the church is going away um and i think you know it it obviously also depends right like there there's very different religion you mm-hmm. you can have the like you know, very like Christian conservative nationalist religion, which is very, very different from like tolerant kind of ecumenical spirituality and other faiths that are practiced both in the US and and around the world. And, you know, obviously there's there's Judaism, there's Islam, there's there's a ton of different faiths. So I, I don't think religion and organized religion are going anywhere. 
I think they will continue to exist and and serve a very like valuable purpose. But I do think um, organized religion does need to potentially sort of evolve its definition, potentially evolve its structures, evolve the way that it works and and reaches and engages with young people. Um, and you know, again, it's like there are there are opportunities to reform and improve almost any institution, right? Like this is mm-hmm. this is not just a, a commentary about organized religion. Like there's plenty of opportunities to reform government and and reform other things as well. But I think you know what we probably would want to see, or what I would imagine we will see, is organized religion thinking about how do we need to kind of evolve our our policies and our traditions and the way that we engage people and build community and sort of educate people on these topics so that it does sort of feel um, accessible and, and tolerant and in line with what I think younger generations are, are looking for and potentially need. I am going to take you to something totally different. Um, music is is very important for to me, so I always have a music related question as well. And um, the question that I would like to ask you is if if um, I ask you to mention a piece of music or a song uh, that embodies who you are, Chris, uh, what you are about, you know, for most part, um, you know, which song or piece of music. Uh, you know, would you mention and why? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I'm also a big, uh, big music lover myself. So uh, excellent question. Uh, I have a couple different potential answers to this. So, I mean, one, um, one piece that I think I've sort of loved all my life, um, because literally, I think my mom like introduced me to it when I was like a little mm-hmm. kid, like I know she, she used to play music for me when I was a baby. Um, and I think for whatever reason, as a baby, one of my favorite pieces was uh, Vivaldi's Four Seasons. And I actually still really, really like it today. I would actually say if anyone really likes Vivaldi's Four Seasons, um, there is a German artist, kind of composer, electronic musician, Max Richter, who's also done some composing for films. Um, he has a really interesting kind of like modern reinterpolation of Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which is in some cases quite excellent. I actually think he might have done even one of Vivaldi's pieces better than Vivaldi did, but um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll sort of leave that for for other people to decide. But I think okay. the sort of Vivaldi Spring is one of my favorite all time mm-hmm. pieces, and I really like the the Richter uh, reinterpolation of okay. the two. I think Spring is a great, um, you know, it's a it's a transitional, but it's an optimistic piece, right? Like we're going from winter to summer, like, you know, you see kind of the rebirth of nature and things coming out of hibernation. And it's, you know, I think of spring as a very transitional, but optimistic time in the world and and in nature. And I think it's, it's captured very beautifully in that music as well. And um, yeah, I would say I probably listen to that almost every week. Great. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I made a special uh, Spotify um song list um so yeah when you when you you should be able to when you uh search for um hashtag walk talk listen in spotify you see all the songs that have been chosen by uh by my guests so that that's great
yeah, I, I still want, want to ask you, you know, maybe a, a tough questions, and especially because you worked with, you were mentoring this younger generation. Um, you know, uh, a, an important topic for my organization, and, you know, last year we celebrated our 75th anniversary. We looked kind of back, you know, what did we do well and what not. One of the big topics was racial justice. How did we do? And, uh, you know, I, I have a question to you about that. You know, if, if you look at the NGO sector as, as a whole, which is a difficult thing to do because, you know, it's a very diverse sector, you, you know, you have small and, and big ones. But I'm asking you the question anyway, if, if you look at the NGOs in general and what they did or did not do around racial justice, yeah, well, what is your, your opinion about uh, that? Um, and again, we could talk days and days about this. I totally get that. But to get some, you know, flavor around it from your perspective. Yeah, it's a really good and, and complicated question. And I think some of it comes back to kind of what you were saying earlier around like principles of like institutional equity. And I, I guess what I'll, what I'll say is this, I, I've seen like incredible examples of kind of mission-driven racial equity focused intervention by nonprofits and charities and NGOs. And I've also seen some things that um, strike me as fairly kind of performative or counterproductive. I think part of the challenge that you face is you know, because a lot of the traditional money coming to foundations and philanthropies is coming through ostensibly, you know, white wealth, uh, effectively, for, for lack of a better word, I mean, kind of call it what it is. Um, you don't necessarily always have the kind of structural motivations at the very top to focus on kind of equity and what communities of color or, or Black communities potentially need. Um, that said, you know, and around like the sort of George Floyd Black Lives Matter conversation in, in 2020, actually uh, a sort of a friend and colleague of mine, Christina Lewis, who's a philanthropist, like she actually created an organization called Giving Gap, uh, which was focused on helping try to point more philanthropic dollars, more philanthropic giving and allocate it to Black run and, and Black owned uh, nonprofits. So there are examples of that, but like just the fact that she felt that Giving Gap needed to exist um, speaks to the fact that, you know, there still is sort of a Giving Gap. Um, and, you know, at the same time, like I've seen really good examples of like very grassroots things. So, um, you know, two of my friends who are in the Bronx, um, like Hawk and, and Siobhan and Newsom, you know, they actually started more, really their roots were in kind of racial justice activism um, around kind of the Black Lives Matter cause. But they've now set up, you know, after school programs, and they started a nonprofit, and they're doing, you know, really, really wonderful, like community work in Harlem or the Bronx. And that was a really interesting example of kind of rather than going through the traditional NGO structure, like they kind of just did it because they said like, hey, we're in this community, we see the problems and we know what the community needs. And so we're just going to do it. Um, and I think that kind of goes back to that like global versus local question, which is sometimes, you know, big foundations or big NGOs or big nonprofits, like if I'm running that nonprofit from, you know, 
midtown Manhattan, but I'm trying to help people in the Bronx. Like how much time am I actually spending in the Bronx? Am I listening to the members of my team who are there on the ground? And I think that's much more complicated if I'm running an organization from New York, but you know, maybe my program, you know, leads are in Africa or South America or Asia or the Middle East. So it, it's kind of making sure that there is that balance that we were talking about earlier, and you don't have kind of the decision makers and the funders disintermediated from the communities that they're actually trying to help. Like the more we can really foster communication and empathy and understanding in in all areas, including racial equity, I think that will lead to much better outcomes. And I think one of the ways that you do that is by also, you know, investing in diversity internally, right? Like more diverse teams and more diverse boards and more diverse leadership is going to make sure that those perspectives and those communities are are represented at the decision making table. And I think that's true, you know, racially and socioeconomically and from a gender standpoint and, and all these other areas. Hey, Chris, you know, these times together always goes fast. And, and I have three um, final questions for you. I mean, the first two quick ones where uh, I would like you to answer maybe with some keywords and then a, a longer one at, at the end. Um, the, the first of the, the quick, the two quick question is, where do you see hope? Uh, I I think I see hope in the people that are actually contributing to the change. You know, I think there's this kind of maybe 80-20 rule where, you know, 20% of people potentially in a society are going to kind of move things forward. Um, but the people who are, you know, organizing and the people who are voting and the people who are leading these organizations and working in these frontline communities, like I think those people who kind of create the groundswell and the momentum so that the rest of society can kind of embrace and, and move that along, I think that's super, super important. So I think I find hope in like just example after example of people who are sort of on the front lines of change, kind of driving it and and really making it accessible or available to, to future generations. Great. What would issue most at the moment? I think just time. You know, I, I feel like I never have enough time. Um, you know, time is very finite, right? Like it's the one resource we can't buy. Um, and I just feel like with a lot of things, like we're we're short on time. You know, we have five to 10 years to make major strides on climate, or we're going to run into a lot bigger problems. You know, we, we need to end the war in Ukraine. We need to end global conflict. We need to address poverty. Like, I think there's just a lot of urgency around these very like existential moral and ethical challenges. And, you know, now is the time to do it, but like, we can't wait, like we can't put this off for another 10 years or the consequences are going are to be really terrifying. Um, any message, last message or invitation or question for the listeners? Yeah, I think, you know, the one thing that I find helpful from a perspective standpoint, and so this is kind of simultaneously an observation and a challenge is, 
you know, there's so many different ways that you can make a positive impact in the world. Like you can't do everything. Like if you try to do everything, you're going to tire yourself out and you're going to burn yourself out and you're going to run out of resources. Like I've kind of been through that already, both like on a personal level and brightest, which is there's only so much like activism and program work and entrepreneurship in a, in a social capacity that any one person can do. And so I think the key things are saying one, like start somewhere, like what is the one thing that I am most excited or passionate about that I really feel I can make an impact Two, like, what is my kind of special gift or skill, right? Like, are you really good? Are you a people person? Are you a relationship person? Are you a tech person? Are you a logistics person? Like, we need different people to play different roles in the, the solution set. And so thinking about like, what do I really care about? Where's a good place to start? How can I contribute? And, and then saying like, who else is already doing this, right? Like, I think we need to be kind of humble and, and not always say like, I need to reinvent the wheel. Like, I know that's kind of a, like, I should be self-aware about that because I started my own organization. So like, you know, but I, I fundamentally felt like we were solving a gap and an opportunity that really didn't exist in the market and really still kind of doesn't exist. And I think if you see an opportunity and you do a bunch of research and there's no one doing it, you should go do it, whether that's local or, or global or wherever. But going back to kind of the collaboration idea, if there's other people already working on this or there's other organizations that are already making progress, like start there because um, we really do need to collaborate. Like no one can do this alone. And so I think it's the combination of like passion and clarity on the direction, knowing what you can contribute and then kind of knowing who to work with. Like if you can put those three things together, you can have a huge impact. Um, that's the way that I try to think about it. And you know, hopefully if, if you're not already kind of having the impact that you want to have, or that, you know, you aspire to have, um, maybe think about those three areas and, and how you can kind of further refine your, your approach and your intentionality. Chris, I, I would really like to thank you so much for, you know, time and, and the fact that you shared your experience and your knowledge. I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure uh, the listeners as well. And I would like to wish you all the best with everything you do. And, uh, important and, and and great work so thank you so much yeah you as well maurice i appreciate it so much and, and thank you for having me great for listening to walk talk listen please check us out on 100mile.org or follow us on facebook or instagram <laughs>